Hi, I'm Rachel Hancock, editor of the Gold Coast Bulletin, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to the Women of the Year podcast series. We're delighted to partner with Harvey Norman in bringing this podcast series to life, and in particular their CEO, Katie Page, who has championed women throughout her career. The Gold Coast Bulletin's role in the community is to inform, inspire and celebrate the people who make a real difference to our city. You're going to hear from five inspiring women in this series, so sit back and get comfortable as these remarkable women share their stories with you. Excellence means that we do our teaching, our research, we engage with the community in ways that are really at world standard, not, you know, quite good for the Gold Coast or pretty nice for Queensland. We're doing our teaching at a level that's winning national awards. Uh, We're undertaking research that is making a splash all around the world. Welcome to the Women of the Year podcast brought to you by the Gold Coast Bulletin. I'm your host, Brooke Stoddart, and in this series, we'll be chatting to five hugely successful women from all different fields. Yet they all have one thing in common. They've all been raised with the belief that gender has nothing to do with success. Professor Carolyn Evans is the brand new Vice Chancellor of Griffith University. She's the fifth person to lead the institution in its 40-year history, and she's the first woman to take the job. She's had a long and distinguished career in academics as a law professor, working for the last 20 years at the University of Melbourne as the dean of its law school and most recently as its deputy vice-chancellor. She is a Rhodes Scholar and has a doctorate from Oxford. She's a Fulbright Scholar and was shortlisted by the United Nations for a position as Special Rapporteur on Religious Freedom and has spoken in numerous countries. She's also the mother of two children. Carolyn Evans, welcome. We are really thrilled to have you. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Now, your old boss, Professor Glyn Davis, who himself was the third Vice-Chancellor of Griffith University, said on your appointment, she has vision, courage and intelligence in abundance. They're pretty nice words to be to hear about yourself. What is your vision for Griffith University? So my vision rests on three pillars, and these are existing pillars at Griffith. It's not something new. It's building on our existing strength. And that's a commitment to excellence, to ethical behaviour and to engagement. So excellence means that we do our teaching, our research, we engage with the community in ways that are really at world standard, not, you know, quite good for the Gold Coast or pretty nice for Queensland. We're doing our teaching at a level that's winning national awards. Uh, We're undertaking research that is making a splash all around the world. And you can think about some of the areas of of enormous strength at Griffith, which go from everything from uh, Conservatorium with its wonderful music to the Glycomics Institute that's doing groundbreaking medical research uh, right across the spectrum of disciplines, including uh, ensuring that our students have a wonderful experience while they're here. Ethical behaviour, though, is something that really, I think, sets the Griffith community apart. And I felt that even more strongly since I started a few days ago. Griffith is a values institution. It cares about universities reaching out to those who've traditionally been excluded. It cares about social justice. It's engaged with a wide variety of projects to try and make its local communities better, uh, as well as making an impact globally. And that's a really important element to the staff and students and one that we really have to nurture. 
Well, how do we do all of that? Uh, I think one of the critical elements is engagement. That is, we partner, and we partner with a whole range of different institutions and people from the Gold Coast Hospital, which is an amazing institution, to local and state governments, to businesses, to community groups, uh, and to the wide range of individuals who are part of our community. And that sense of engagement is something that I really want to build on and develop. And we can think about things like the Gold Coast Health and Knowledge Initiative, which is amazing and exciting partnership between government, between the hospital, the universities and private sector, which is going to drive jobs, it's going to drive opportunity, it's going to drive the reputation of the Gold Coast. And Griffith is going to be there right at the heart of it, investing tens of millions of dollars in an exciting new building, which will allow businesses and entrepreneurs and, of course, our own staff to be able to use 3D printing and materials testing to get their businesses off the ground and to understand and prototype their ideas early on. So that's the sort of university that I want to see us being, uh, which is to build on the legacy of the university that we already are. Outside of the Gold Coast, most people view our city as a tourism town, a place for property development and high-rise, which is true, but they don't realise we have an amazing health and knowledge precinct. How important is that project in setting up the region for the future and what is Griffith's role in that? It's absolutely critical. Uh, Of course, tourism will always be an important part of the Gold Coast and who wouldn't want to come and visit such an amazing part of the world? Uh, And Griffith has a tourism course which is ranked second in the world, which goes to show that we're very committed to that area. But the future is about more than that. We need to have jobs for young people and training for young people in this area that will allow them to embrace new jobs of the future. We need to ensure that they're educated in engineering, in mathematics, science, technology, communications, the broad spectrum of skills that students are going to need into the future. And we need to ensure that our researchers are working with people from a range of different industries because you can get fantastic synergies when you work across academia and industry and each brings their own form of expertise. So I think we're part of helping to reinvent the Gold Coast uh, so that it is still a wonderful tourist spot, but it's also a spot that's known for its innovation, for its industry, for its cutting-edge technology, for its culture. Uh, And we really want to be part of that journey with a lot of other partners here on the Gold Coast. Now, just touching back on some of your experience, can you give me some examples of how you've been courageous in your career? So I do think that courage is an important quality to bring to leadership positions. That includes taking risks, uh, trying to do things at the highest possible standards, uh, which sometimes means you fail. And I think that's a message that I'd certainly have for my colleagues, that it's better to try and put your article in the very best journal in the world where the likelihood of being knocked back is higher rather than just, you know, going for something that you can be sure you'll easily achieve. When I started as Dean of the Law School at Melbourne University, uh, I was the first female dean in its 150-year history, uh, and we were at quite a complex point in time with, uh, with some financial difficulties. But I was determined that we were going to establish a clinical program for our students that allowed us to work with community legal services, which allowed us to work with the Victorian government's free legal aid services, uh, and that allowed the students to get real hands-on experience, which I think really brings their law degree to life, and also meant that we were contributing to the community that we were part of. There'd been a lot of attempts and a lot of talk about doing that over the past 150 years and we'd never quite got there. Uh, Despite the fact that we were in a difficult place at that point in time, 
I took steps uh, so that we went from having a couple of dozen interns, which was all we'd had at the time, uh, to about three quarters of our students having some clinical experience by the time they left the law school. Uh, And I had a lot of support from colleagues in doing that, but it certainly required taking on some of the established ideas of what a law school was or should be at a place like Melbourne University. Why is it important to be courageous in your work life? And and do you think women need to be more courageous or or just work harder to get ahead? So I think women do tend to work harder as our default to how we get ahead. It's not a bad thing. Hard work is, is fine. Uh, I don't think all of the onus should be on women. I think we need structures that search out and find talent, uh, which isn't always self-confidently proclaiming how, how wonderful it is. Uh, but I would certainly encourage uh, women to be more courageous sometimes. We know that, for example, in applying for promotions or jobs, that men will apply if they feel that they have you know, a little more than half of the selection criteria knocked off. Uh, women will have to see 100% of the selection criteria and will often invent new criteria that don't even exist to say that they might not be ready for the job. Uh, I've done a lot of work in my uh, time in various leadership positions encouraging and supporting women to take some bold steps. As I say, that also includes being ready to sometimes not succeed in the steps that you take. Um, But, yeah, I would certainly encourage other women to have a go, reach out, apply for things, stretch themselves, uh, take on ambitious projects rather than things that necessarily they can be absolutely sure they'll achieve because the rewards can be enormous and the contributions that they can make uh, can be outstanding. Now, in your career, you have worked in private practice but you've found academia, and I suppose, what is it about academia that has made it so fulfilling for you? I think really good universities, and I've been very lucky to have been associated with great universities, are transformative. Uh, They really change individual lives and they change the broader community. So as somebody who taught for many years, uh, there's something really heartwarming about somebody emailing you a year, five years, ten years down the track and saying, I was in your class and I've now become a lawyer in this area because you, know, you inspired me to do so or I was about to drop out because I couldn't cope with juggling having a small baby and studying and, you know, you sat down and helped me over a few weeks and I wanted to let you know, no, I'm now a practising lawyer. You know, that that's really wonderful, feeling you're impacting individuals in that way. But then also the research that we do and the things that we can do as leaders to develop institutions that are more visionary and more ambitious over the longer term changes the society in which we live. It creates new jobs, new opportunities, new products. It creates new ways of thinking about the world. It inspires us to understand what being human is. It sparks off creative joy. Uh, So I think universities just can be an enormously positive and transformative force for the universities, for the communities that they're part of. Now, if we're speaking to um, young women in high school or potentially in university or starting their careers, regardless of what field they're in, would you recommend academia as a career or do you have to be a certain type of person to to enjoy it? I think you have to be a certain type of person to enjoy it. Uh, it, It's not the right career for everybody, but for those for whom it is the right career, I think it can be a wonderful, rewarding, satisfying career. Look, my father used to say if you enjoyed every moment of your job, they wouldn't have to pay you for it. Uh, It has its ups and downs. It has its difficulties, as do all jobs. Uh, But for people uh, who 
take joy in, in teaching and research and pushing intellectual boundaries, uh, it, it can be a wonderful career. Your area of expertise within the law has been religious freedom and the place it plays within the law. In recent times, and certainly now, the deadlock between the two major political parties over the implications of same-sex marriage and religious freedoms is a huge issue and will likely to be a huge election issue later this year. Now, as an expert in this field, I would imagine it's a very juicy issue to be involved with and one you possibly wait your whole career for. Is this debate something you're likely to have a public voice or role on in its solution in your new position with Griffith? So I think my day job is going to be a fairly busy one and that will, of course, have to be my first priority. I also think it's important as a leader in an institution uh, like a university to ensure that whatever my own views might be on particular issues, they don't make other people feel that they can't have their independent views on these things. Academic freedom is incredibly important. Uh, Freedom of our students to be able to think about these complex and controversial issues in ways that are most appropriate to them and their experience. So I wouldn't want to do anything that would make people feel uncomfortable or as though they couldn't have a view. Uh, I may end up taking some part in the debate. When I have... uh, you know, a, a colleague uh, summarised what they thought, my, my, my whole, I thought, a very complex, thoughtful body of work. They summarised it in four words, but I thought they were appropriate words. Um, more light, less heat. Uh, and that's what I really think some of these that. debates need at the moment. Uh, I, I've always tried to be an honest broker to explain complex legislation, for example, in a way that ordinary people can understand, not so that I can tell them what they should think, but so that their own thinking can be more informed, they can understand what international human rights law might have to say about these issues, for example. And I really have tried to act as a bridge between sometimes warring parties to say there are legitimate and serious concerns, both for those who think their religious freedom is being threatened and also by those who might feel that too much religious freedom might threaten their own, for example, equality uh, or place in society. So, you know, if, if I do play a role, I hope it will be as a some degree of an honest broker. But as I say, uh, I'm not finding a whole lot of spare hours in the day so far. Growing up in Greensboro, which is a working class suburb in Melbourne, you went to Catholic school and excelled at school, as you would imagine. What was it about the law which appealed to young Carolyn? Well, in fact, young Carolyn wanted to be a doctor. Uh, from the age of about seven to the age of about 17, I I spent my weekends drawing skeletal systems and uh, handing out Tic Tacs, uh, pretending that they were tablets. Not when I was 17, you'd be glad to know, but uh, when I was younger. Uh, but I really enjoyed, uh, I studied chemistry and physics and, and double maths, and I enjoyed the sciences very much. But my talents that became clearer to me were more in the humanities and the social sciences and uh, that side of the brain. I think my motivation as both wanting to be a doctor and, and wanting to be a lawyer was similar. I liked the idea of being able to make a positive impact on the community. I know people don't always think about lawyers in that way, uh, but I watched a lot of television shows which were entirely inaccurate uh, in giving you any sense of what it's actually like to be a lawyer. LA Law? LA Law back in the day. Rumpole of the Bailey, I'm that old. Um, But, you know, we're, we're... Righteous lawyers stood up for the underprivileged and so forth uh, while wearing incredibly smart suits and uh, not actually doing very much work. So, uh, you know, but that I think it was the same motivations in both cases. How do you make the world a better place? Did your religious education propel you into your field of expertise? 
Look, I think it probably did. Uh, Catholic schooling gives you a very strong sense of the importance of values uh, and that it's not just about you and what you can get out of life. It's about what you can contribute to the world. So I think it's been a very strong influence on my life. Uh, And I did find it fascinating as someone who had no lawyers in the family or a background, when I came to law school, there were a lot of similarities that I saw between the law and religion, Uh, but lawyers would be horrified by the idea of that. Uh, But they're both, in fact, ways of trying to control society, creating rules. At the time, there were a lot of men in robes who ran both systems, Um, but each of them saw themselves as very distinct and special and separate. I was very interested in what happened when two systems, each of which said, I am the ultimate authority, came into conflict with one another. That struck me as an extremely interesting intellectual exercise. And I should say at the time, everybody told me I was crazy to be looking at this issue. Religion is over. We will not be talking about religion in 10 years. One of my very bright senior mentors said, don't go down this path, nobody's going to care, which just goes to show that uh, sometimes you follow your passions rather than what everybody else is doing. You're very new to Griffith University, but what's the best part of your job or what are you most looking forward to? Oh, it's the people. Uh, And that's already been the best part of the job. Uh, Griffith is an incredibly friendly, welcoming environment. uh, And I've experienced that and I've been lucky to experience that already. Uh, Perhaps people were always going to be friendly to the new Vice-Chancellor, but uh, I've certainly seen from the, the surveys and the work with our students and our staff, that's an outstanding quality that while we strive for excellence, we're certainly ambitious in what we do. We do it in a way that uh, creates a really lovely community. And I'm really looking forward to being part of that community, both within Griffith and then and the Gold Coast and the other communities that we're part of as well. Now, you just mentioned a senior mentor who warned you off your field of expertise, which was obviously the wrong advice at the time. But how important is mentoring? And in terms of being mentored and also mentoring others, Have you always had mentors? I think mentoring is absolutely fundamental Uh, and I've been fortunate in in having some mentors over time. Uh, I think one of the things that happens when you perhaps haven't come from as privileged a background is that you don't have those same opportunities and mentoring Uh, and so it did take perhaps some time for me to to find those people. Uh, But I've had both formal and informal mentoring and been incredibly lucky to work with someone like Glyn Davis, who is one of the world's great vice-chancellors. Um, and I've had some mentoring in recent years from Sir John Hood, who's the former vice-chancellor of Oxford, uh, and who's been particularly terrific at um, helping women into leadership roles in universities. Uh, but I've also taken enormous pleasure in mentoring others. Uh, I think uh, many academics can't imagine why you'd want to take on leadership roles. You know, they love their teaching, they love their research and uh, they sort of think it's all paperwork and uh, and budgets and there's a lot of paperwork and budgets that I can understand why people don't like that so much. But the opportunity to set a culture and a tone for an institution and to create the conditions in which other people can succeed, I think that's a real privilege. And whether you you do that through broader policies or or cultural approaches uh, or through more individual mentoring opportunities, it's always been something that uh, has been at the heart of my approach to leadership. Do you set goals for yourself? Uh, I do. I'm not not an obsessive goal setter. Uh, I set fairly clear standards of behaviour for myself uh, and and 
test myself quite rigorously against those. Uh, I, I set more goals for the institutions or groups that I'm part of um, and then see my own part in that. I, I don't necessarily, you know, by the time I'm 50, I have to have um, achieved this level or, or whatever. It's been a little bit more opportunistic and just being willing to grab opportunities when they've arisen. When you were growing up, you, you mentioned your family, there was no one who was involved in the law. Mm. Were you taught from an early age that you just put your head down and you work hard and you can achieve whatever you want to achieve? Yeah, so my family had a very strong values around hard work um, and uh, both my parents worked very hard and, and, you know, truth be told, didn't have a lot of uh, choice but to do so. Uh, and my brothers and I have taken very different paths in life but we all had that shared. You could, you could see that uh, that coming through, that that was important. And, and I think one of the things my parents were really good at uh, and perhaps we need a little bit more of is a genuine you can do whatever you want to do. So um, I pursued a very academic career and got lots of degrees and have gone down this path. Uh, one of my brothers uh, went through the apprenticeship route and has become a tradesman and uh, you know, does really well in his area. The other went into um, retail and, and has, has risen through the ranks there. So we've taken you know, genuinely different approaches that our own skills and abilities and predispositions set us up for success in. Uh, and I think too often perhaps parents... You know, middle-class parents tuck their kids into the box that says you've got to go to uni and you've got to be in the professions. Some of them might, in fact, do very well in other areas. Uh, and, you know, certainly Griffith as a university wants to encourage kids who do come from working-class backgrounds who might be first in family to see the benefits that some of them would have uh, by going to university. Now, your children, they're grown now, are they? They are. They're both at university. And so that was my next question. Was was that just a given that they would go? Yeah. Well, just because their personality types and the way they um, what they enjoy and what they're good at meant that, yes, they were both very much committed to going to university. Uh, it's always quite interesting as a university leader to have your kids actually at the coalface of things. You, I remember my daughter was trying to enrol in her first year and was finding it difficult to do online. And I say, oh, yeah, step aside, darling. I'm the I'm the deputy vice chancellor. I'll be able to fix this. And 20 minutes later, we were still both sitting there pulling our hair out. So uh, it's it's not a bad thing to occasionally see the university <laughs> through the eyes of a first year student. Absolutely. Now I just want to talk a little bit about. Um, self-care and how you look after yourself, mm. what are your non-negotiables? You know, how do you ensure your mind and body are running at the optimum level? Look, I, I have to admit, as somebody who's had two school-aged children and a pretty full career and a husband with a fairly full career, uh, the word non-negotiable hasn't really attached itself to self-care and that's something that I'm conscious I need to, to improve. Uh, I do exercise a couple of times a week. Um, I do that conscientiously, but without, I have to admit, a lot of pleasure. <laughs> it's something I know I need to do. Uh, one thing that's great for me is that the beach is something that I love, as walking along the beach, swimming, looking at the beach. So the fact that I'm living a couple of hundred metres from this gorgeous stretch of the coast is such a great pleasure now because I'm not very good at meditation or mindfulness or those sorts of things, but just being near the ocean I find very relaxing. Uh, the other thing that I found is I have to have a creative element to my life. So uh, I love reading novels, uh, theatre, music. Uh, if, if it's all just very analytical, very um, focused on the, the, um, the lawyer side of the brain, if you like, uh, 
that over time is not good for my mental health and I think probably not good for my leadership either. So I always have to try and keep some element of that in my life. That's interesting, isn't it? Because everybody talks about work-life balance, which I always think is a bit of BS anyway because I think it looks different for different people. Yeah. But it's interesting to talk about the two sides of your brain mm. and how you need to balance those as well. I think so. It's certainly when my children were very young um, was a time in my life that I just didn't have any capacity to do that and I found I was getting very stressed and, and finding life difficult and I realised I just needed to set aside, even if it was just an hour or to a week, and it was probably never more than that, uh, just to read a novel or um, to go to a, a play or something like that uh, made a huge difference to the way that I was both a mother and a worker. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to ask you five really quick, quick, quick questions. <laughs> Don't think too hard mm-hmm. about them. What's your favourite song? Uh, Respect, Aretha Franklin. Favourite movie? My Fair Lady. <laughs> What are you reading at the moment? I've just finished Too Much Lip by a great Griffith alumna, Melissa Lushenko. What advice would you give to your 25-year-old self? Perhaps don't be quite as hard on yourself. It is going to turn out okay in the end. And what three words would you most like to be remembered for? Made a difference. Carolyn Evans, thank you so much for your time and best of luck with this new role. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Next week, I speak to Harvey Norman CEO Katie Page. She takes us on a journey of her life from barefoot schoolgirl in country Queensland to running a global company with lots of great insights along the way. The number of educators that influenced my life that believed that you could do anything, whether you were male or female. And then in business, I had these two people that felt the same thing. So at no point did I have in my life really the important people in my life saying that I couldn't do whatever I wanted to do. The Women of the Year podcast is written and produced by me, Brooke Stoddart, and audio engineered by the wonderful Matt Fulton from Hot Tomato. Make sure you subscribe and download next week's episode, or if you'd like to read more about the Women of the Year campaign, go to womenoftheyear.com.au. Hi, I'm Rachel Hancock, editor of the Gold Coast Bulletin. Thank you for listening to the Women of the Year, a podcast brought to you by the Gold Coast Bulletin in partnership with Harvey Norman. Each day, the Gold Coast Bulletin tells the news and stories of our city, from hard-hitting news to the best in sport, which is possible thanks to our subscribers. Subscribers can enjoy full, unrestricted access to our content on desktop, mobile and our app. For a range of subscription options, I encourage you to visit goldcoastbulletin.com.au forward slash subscribe.